I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles one more time to the book of Amos, the book of Amos chapter 9, Amos chapter 9. If you uh, don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one from under the chair in front of you, and Amos chapter 9 will be found on page 770 of the church Bible. Amos chapter 9. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'll pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we will uh, dig in one verse at a time as we have always done, and by God's grace, we'll continue to do. Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw standing beside the altar, then I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, There I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil, and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth. Who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Declares the Lord. Do not bring them... Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And repair its breaches. And raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name. Declares the Lord who does this. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you send your Holy Spirit to us here this morning, and by your grace, open our eyes to see the beauties of Jesus in this text. This text, which has written so many years ago to a people we don't know in a language we don't speak. But nevertheless, a timeless text which applies not just to those who heard it first, but to the first century church and to the 21st century church. Encourage us and strengthen us through these words that we might declare the glory of Jesus more fruitfully, more effectively. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. God loves metaphor. There are metaphors throughout the Bible. And one of, it seems to us that one of the favorite metaphors that the Lord uses is that of a vine. The Lord uses this metaphor of a vine to describe that His people are like a vine and He like their vine dresser. This appears over and over in the Scriptures. It appears in the Psalms. It appears in Isaiah. It appears in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Hosea. Even the Lord Jesus used this metaphor. Those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John, in John chapter 15, we read the Lord saying this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Metaphors are a powerful teaching tool. And that's why the Lord used them so often in His ministry. Listen how this metaphor just expounds as the Lord continues using it. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He goes on to say, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Lord is saying that those who are not united to Him cannot produce Christian fruit. They will be cut off. But those who are united to Him will bear fruit and they will be pruned in order that they may bear more fruit and so proved to be his disciples. As we come to the end of Amos, we see the Lord pruning his people. God's judgment falls heavy on the fruitless branches in Israel. And they are cut off, and they are gathered, and they are burned. The faithful remnant, the fruitful while enduring His judgment, are preserved. 
they are promised a glorious future. There are two movements in Amos chapter 9. Both of them, uh, the Lord is active. In the first movement, verses 1 to 10, we see the Lord, God's inescapable judgment on the fruitless branches. And in verses 11 to 15, we read of God's glorious future for the fruitful branches. So we'll work through this whole chapter together, looking at those two points, and then at the end, we'll turn to the New Testament. You see, because in in the New Testament book of Acts, verses 11 and 12 are quoted and applied to that situation going on in Jerusalem in the first century. And we'll find that this passage in Amos is extremely relevant for the situation going on there, and that it is extremely relevant to us here today. So that's how it's laid out this morning. Here's the big idea. God's judgment was to cut off the fruitless and establish the fruitful to accomplish His mission through Christ. That God's judgment was to cut off the fruitless, to establish the fruitful in order to accomplish His glorious mission through Christ. So we'll start in verses 1 to, th- 1 to 4 again and look at God's inescapable judgment on the wicked. So if you still have your Bible open, verse 1 down to 4. Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar, possibly on the altar, and he says, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And then a bunch of these if statements. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And then this sobering word at the end, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. This is the final vision in the book of Amos. There have been five, I think. And this one is different than all of the other visions Amos had because the Lord is standing beside the altar, possibly on the altar. And we're not told which altar this is or which temple this is. We're left to assume from the following verses that this is one of the godless temples in the north. And now it's helpful to remind to mind ourselves what's been going on in the book of Amos. God's covenant people had split into two separate kingdoms, Israel, the kingdom to the north, and Judah, the kingdom to the south. Israel in the north had largely abandoned the true worship of God. They had built altars to foreign gods and sacrificed to idols. Their king Jeroboam II had taken advantage of a political situation and expanded their territory, thus bringing in great wealth into the kingdom. The rich in Israel got richer, and they would use those riches to acquire lavish comforts and exploit the poor. Amos is a simple farmer in the southern kingdom that the Lord sent 
and called to, to, called to go to nor- the northern kingdom in Israel and to call them to repent of their sin, to, to, to turn away from the oppression of the poor, to repent of their false worship, to stop the slave trade going on in Israel and to end their persecution of the righteous. And Amos warns that if Israel does not repent of these things, that God's judgment will fall upon them. And for the most part, the prophet Amos is rejected. Israel ignores the prophet's warnings. And so the Lord comes to the place of Israel's false worship and he speaks. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. The capitals are the tops of the pillars which support the roof of the temple. And God strikes them so hard that it causes the foundation of the temple to shake and the whole building collapses on the heads of everyone inside. The place of pagan worship collapses on everyone worshiping within. It is a powerful picture. Because friends, there is one God. And He does not share worship with anyone. Right worship of the one true God alone is safe. If you were to give your worship to anyone or anything or anything that you add to Him, it will bring the roof down on your head. So if you're here and not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I hope you feel welcomed here. And I want you to know that you never have to become a Christian in order to be welcomed here. But I must tell you, worshiping the one true God is the only safe worship. And you might not consider yourself much of a religious person or a worshiper. But friend, worship is just really anything you devote yourself to. It's the thing you're looking to, to give you the life that you want. That's what you're worshiping. And if that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, it is not safe. And the roof will collapse on your head. And here in a few moments, I hope to show you how you might be rescued from that judgment. The Lord promises that no one who is clinging to false worship will escape. If you're in the temple, the roof falls on your head and you're lost. If you escape, you'll meet the sword. No one escapes. In verses 2 to 5, God makes it clear. The wicked in Israel, they can run. They cannot hide from me. If they dig into Sheol, the place of the dead, God will take them from there. If they climb up into heaven, He'll bring them down. They can hide themselves on Mount Carmel, and He will find them there. They can invent ocean submersibles and go to the deepest part of the ocean, and He's like, I'll meet you there. Can't even sell yourself into slavery. I will find you. And then God says, I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. These fruitless branches will be cut off. And then we come to verses 5 and 6. And they seem out of place. Let's read them again. 
the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the Lord of the earth. The Lord is his name. It seems out of place, but it's not. Bible scholars have noted the metrical form of the Hebrew in these two verses and wondered whether Amos was quoting from an old hymn. An old hymn which extolled the power of God over nature and by implication over human events. And these verses teach that God is the Lord. He is the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth trembles at His touch. He is to be exalted above all else. He is transcendent. We see His upper chamber in the heavens, His vault on the earth. Everything in between belongs to Him. This is useful for them to know because the rich in the northern kingdom wrongly assumed that this powerful God of their hymn was on their side. I mean, after all, they were rich and powerful. They conquered the surrounding nations. They were a privileged people. God was their ally. He would bless them. If there was any judgment to come, it would be on those outside, on their enemies. And in their presumption of their privilege, they had loosened their morals. They exploited the poor and committed sexual immorality and blended the worship of Yahweh with the worship of false gods. And the effect of quoting this hymn to them would cause Israel to see that this God whose touch melts the earth has stretched out His hand to touch you. And their presumption would become their peril. And this is the effect of verses 7 to 10. Let's read again. The rhetorical verses of verse seven, rhetorical questions of verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor? And the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. So he says, Are you, aren't you like the Cushites? Didn't I bring you out of Egypt and the Philistines out of Kaftor and the Syrians out of Kerr? He's saying, I'm not just your God, I am the God. I'm not just in control of your business, I'm in control of all the business. You don't get God on your side, you get yourself on God's side. That's what they're doing here. Verse 8 is the only place in Scripture where Israel is ever called the sinful kingdom. And God sees them. My eye is on them. 
God will destroy any kingdom of man which does not have him as their foundation. And the destruction that is coming upon the sinful kingdom will be absolutely devastating. But the devastation that is coming on Israel will be devastating to be sure, but not absolute. Note, the Lord says at the end of verse 8, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. The Lord will preserve a people for himself. A remnant. The faithful. The fruitful. Those branches in him that do bear fruit. In verse 9, God says that he will shake the house of Israel among all the nations like a harvesting sieve. A sieve would allow the kernels of grain to fall to the ground so they could be gathered up and harvested. The pebbles and the rocks and all of the other parts which were useless would be trapped and held and discarded. So those who were truly Israel, those fruitful branches, they will be preserved. Which those things which are not fruitful Rocks and pebbles will be discarded. There will be no escape. The New Testament book of Hebrews says that one day the whole earth will be shaken. And that which is shaken will be removed and that which cannot be shaken will remain. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author encourages Christians with these words, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God's judgment on the wicked is inescapable. And yet, in His mercy, God preserved a remnant for Himself, a faithful few who have put themselves on God's side. So my non-Christian friend, I told you earlier, I would tell you the way of escape, this judgment that is coming. You need to get yourself on God's side. And there's only one way to get yourself on God's side. And that's to turn your whole life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. God put Jesus forth in your place to suffer the punishment of your sin. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And he has given you a promise today. That if you will fall before the Lord, crying out to Him for mercy, God will have mercy on your soul, unite you to His Son, and you will be on God's side. You will be spared, and you'll be granted eternal life. Do that today. Talk with someone after the service here today. We have some resources that will help you in this new life as a fruitful branch in the kingdom of God. There's a promise for us, Cornerstone, that no matter how dark the sky gets, no matter how far our culture turns from the Lord, whatever judgment God has for the future, God has promised that He will always preserve His people through judgment. Remember the Lord promises His people in Isaiah 43 that He will always be with them. Fear not, 
For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Friends, we will pass through the fires of God's judgment. We will endure suffering in this present darkness. The faithful in Amos' day watched the walls crumbling down around them. But they were preserved. The fruitful will be pruned. But the pruning will be done by the loving and tender heavenly vine dresser. By his touch and cutting and shaping and pruning, you and I will bear more fruit to God's glory. The final five verses in the book of Amos are simply breathtaking, filled with messianic hope. That when your God calls you to walk through waters and rivers and fire, you can bet your life that on the other side there is blessing and glory beyond your wildest imagination. This is God's glorious future for the fruitful. Let's read again, verses 11 to 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So amid the ashes and the broke down walls and the shattered hopes of Israel's northern kingdom, the Lord issues this promise of a glorious future for His fruitful people. And how exactly does God plan to bring about this glorious future? Well, he tells you in verse 11, I will raise up the booth of David. This is the only time in the Bible that this phrase appears. And Bible scholars have argued as to what exactly it means, but almost everyone agrees that it is a reference to the unveiling of God's plan to restore the Davidic kingdom. And those of you who are with us during 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll remember that God made a covenant with King David. That his son would sit on an eternal throne. 
And in Amos' day, the throne of David had fallen. It had been breached. It was in ruin. The men who sat on David's throne were flawed, and most of them very wicked men. Not one of them fulfilled God's promise that he made to his servant David. And so in Amos' day, it may have seemed as if God's promise to David had somehow, somehow failed. And then after Amos' ministry, it would get even worse. Not long after Amos preached these messages, the Assyrian army invaded Israel. And they destroyed the capital city and they carried Israel into captivity. And if that wasn't bad enough, a century and change later, Judah, the southern kingdom, fell to the Babylonians. And for more than 500 years, the throne of David was vacant. Broken down and in ruins. God's covenant people were not ruled by the son of David, but by the Babylonians. And then by the Persians. And then by the Greeks. And then by the Romans. And then one day, some 750 years after Amos spoke these words, an angel of God appeared to a teenage girl in a little town called Nazareth. And the angel of God announced God's plans with these precious words, which we, Lord willing, will get to examine here in a few weeks. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And listen to this, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The glorious future promised to Israel in verses 13 and 15 are brought about when God fulfills His promise to restore the booth of David, which had fallen. When God's own Son, Jesus the Messiah, will sit on the, on the throne of David. The whole book of Amos has been leading to this. Christ. On the eternal throne of glory. And as wonderful as that reality is, Cornerstone, there's more. Here's another thing that Amos has been pointing to in verse 12 that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Edom specifically refers to the descendants of Esau. It became generally applicable to all of the Gentile nations of the earth. So the, the patriarchs in Israel were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Esau was older than Jacob and he sold his birthright to Jacob, and God chose to continue his covenant people through the line of Jacob. 
And Esau's descendants, called the Edomites, became a catch-all term for everyone who was not in the covenant family of God, the Gentiles, the nations. And here we see a stunning reality that God has a remnant in Edom. God has a people called by His name among the nations. And when this Davidic king comes and sits on His eternal throne, He will gather the nations to Himself and He will possess them. This has been the glorious plan of God all along. Notice, it is the Lord who does this. When the elect of God, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, are gathered to God's Messiah, the days of verses 13 to 15 will come. Days when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Days of harvest which come so quick that the one who is harvesting the crop can't even keep up with the one who's planting the seed. When the earth will produce such a bounty that mountains will drip with port and Moscato wine. Cities will be rebuilt, vineyards planted, gardens fruitful. And God will plant His people among all of the nations on the land He promised. And they shall never again be uprooted from the land. And that is a promise that is almost beyond belief. Because losing the land was the result of rebellion against God. So how is it that God can say, these people from all of the nations gathered to my son will never lose their inheritance? If losing the inheritance was a result of rebellion, he's saying, these people won't lose the inheritance. Well, he can make that promise. Because the penalty of sin of His people, ruled over by Christ Himself, has already been paid. His people cannot be cut off from their inheritance because Jesus Christ was cut off in their place. And by God the Holy Spirit, they have been united to Christ, the true vine, and cannot be lost. And by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ locked in these promises from God. To his chosen people forever. We know this is what Amos meant because we know this is how the New Testament applied this passage. And so, if you still have your Bible open, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15, page 924, if you have one of the church Bibles. Acts chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible to us. It's the first church council, the first church business meeting. So you're like, I don't go to church business meetings because they're boring. Well, if this church didn't go to this business meeting, you'd either be eating kosher or worshiping pagan gods. So do you like bacon? If you do, you better be thankful that some people go to church business meetings. All right, Acts chapter 15, we're going to begin reading at verse 12. Acts 15, 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this... The words of the prophet agree just as it is written, and here we are, Amos 9, 
After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Let me explain briefly what's going on in Acts chapter 15. After the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus back into heaven, God poured out His Holy Spirit on the first disciples meeting in the upper room. And immediately these early Christians began preaching and telling people about Jesus as the Christ. Peter preached, God saved sinners, and the church grew from 120 people to 3,000 people in one day. And here I can't sleep because our church is about to go from 130 to 180. They preached Jesus, God saved sinners, and the church was built. A Jewish church of Jewish people. And they kept preaching, and God kept saving sinners, and God kept building His church, a Jewish, Jewish church with Jewish people. But then one, di- one day, their head guy had a vision. And God tells their head guy, I got plans for more, an expansion, if you will. I'm planning to reach the Gentiles for my glory. And Peter preaches to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls on them too. And then God saves a Jew named Paul, and sends him to the Gentiles. And God keeps saving Gentile sinners, and more churches are planted. This time, Gentile churches. And the church in Jerusalem, which is sort of like home base, they get everybody together, and they're like, we've got to figure this out. We've got Jewish churches and Gentile churches. I mean, the Jews have certain customs. The Gentiles don't have those customs. And it used to be that to be in right standing with God, you need to become a Jew, become like the Jews, observe the Jewish commandments. But now we have the Holy Spirit falling on all these Gentiles. What do we do? Do do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to eat kosher? And the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a man by the name of James, who is the kid brother of the Lord Jesus, stands up and look what he says. He takes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and applies it to their situation. James is telling the church council, you guys, Amos wrote about this. Amos told us this would happen. Amos foretold that Messiah would come, the tent of David would be restored, and he would gather his elect from every nation under heaven. That God would take Jew and Gentile from the two, make one new man to glorify His name together. So we can erase ethnic distinctions. You can put your circumcision knives away. We don't need them. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Ephesians 2, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus created in Himself one new man. He's the vine. The one true vine. And we are the branches. Jewish branches, Gentile branches, one vine. This one new man, united in Him, bears much fruit to the glory of God. This one new man consists of people from every tribe and language and nation. 
all of them fueled by white-hot love of God living under the perfect rule and reign of David's Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Cornerstone, you and I are walking out, living in the reality of God's glorious promise in Amos 9. We get to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all who will listen. And as we herald the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, God is pleased to save a remnant and gather them to His Son. And if we have learned anything from the book of Amos, it should be to remember how easy it is to lose sight of this reality. To become insular and self-focused and to spend our resources acquiring goods and comforts to live an easy life. It is easy to forget the grand purposes of God, to exalt His glorious grace in Jesus and to gather the nations to Him. But Cornerstone, no matter what the future holds, we must not lose sight of God's great plan for His global glory. We must remain united to Christ, bearing the fruit thereof, and spend ourselves on the advance of the gospel in the earth. God's judgment on His people in the book of Amos was to prepare the way for Christ to come, for the church to be established, and for the mission of God to be accomplished in the earth. Give yourself to the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all, and submit to His pruning. The parts of your life which bear little fruit to God, give them over to the holy pruning shears of your loving Father, the great vine dresser. The pruning is painful rather than pleasant, but we are promised that it will later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And on the last day, as our lives are being evaluated, you can have this assurance that nothing you have spent on Christ will have been wasted. You may have regrets on that day, but I promise you no one here will regret the sacrifices made to see Christ formed in yourself, on others, to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. Cornerstone, give yourself to that which truly counts. And remember what the Lord Jesus said, in John 15, that by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bear fruit for his global glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Amos and for what you've done through this little book. We've learned so much about you and your glory and yet we have much to learn. We confess that we have been 
too much like Israel in this book. That our presumption of privilege has become somewhat of a peril to us. We've given too much of ourselves to what is wasteful and fruitless. And when you've come to us in loving discipline, we've resisted your pruning shears. Please forgive us. And Lord, preserve your people. Make us a fruit-bearing people. Give us grace that we would submit fully to you and to your correction. And may we, by God's grace, take radical steps on how we spend our lives. Enable us to see and to not forget your plan for us, for your church, for your global glory. And make us a faithful people who joyfully, as those in Hebrews 11, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better future awaiting. A future like the one we've read about this morning of abundance and riches and rejoicing. Do this, Lord, for Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Your assurance of pardon this morning comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, where we read that God saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, Jew and Gentile alike, through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen.